ask you to remain standing for the reading of the Word. We're in the book of Hebrews this fall, and we're now at chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. There is in this passage a very appropriate word picture. You see, the book of Hebrews is a sermon, it's an exhortation. In fact, the writer himself says in the postscript that it's a brief exhortation. It may not seem so brief to us because it is a very long letter by New Testament letter standards and very dense in its material. A lot is packed into these short chapters. But it's an exhortation. But it's the same exhortation over and over. The exhortation is don't leave Christ. You have come to Christ by faith, believing Him to be your Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the King of Kings, and all that He is. Don't depart from that. Sometimes the exhortations are quite severe. And they're to people who have a different mindset. Not everyone approaches it the same. And so the, the writer has to sort of exhort each mindset or each group. There's a group of people who have come to see Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior. And they take it matter-of-factly. And they take it assumptively. They take it lightly. There are some who have come to see that and have studied and have participated in the growth of understanding, but have created doubts. So there's an exhortation to them for faith. And we have the great faith chapter in chapter 11. There are some that are hardcore apostate. They've come to the faith but they have left the faith and they are now opposed to the faith. And they are now beginning to solidify in their unbelief and in their hostility to Christ and the gospel. Chapter 6 has a strong word of warning against them. And again in chapter 10, it's the same warning over and over, but this is the most gentle one. Because the word picture is this. It's found there in that phrase there in, in verse 1 says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. The picture there is of a, a boat on a river transporting a cargo and flowing downstream and going downstream a relatively easy trip. But there's a destination 
that the cargo is bound toward. But the boat drifts and drifts and drifts. Very few challenges, very much easy effort. And drifts right on past the destination. That's what this means. I think maybe we're in danger of that as much as anybody. There may not be very many hardcore apostates in our midst this morning in this small group. There may not be too many of us that are really, really weak in our faith. But we've believed and we understand it. And we'll hear another sermon about Christ and it'll sound okay and we'll assent and agree, maybe even say amen if we weren't Presbyterian. But we let it slip right past us. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on on, uh, Hebrews adds to the picture and said it's kind of like letting a wedding ring just kind of slip off your finger. It's cold, you're Fingers get a little cold, shrink a little bit, and it just slips off. It's gone. You don't know where you lost it, when you lost it, but it's gone. You don't have it anymore. That's the way some of us are in losing our faith. We're just drifting past it. It's going to slip away from us. Why? Because we didn't give the close attention. That is, we didn't concentrate. We didn't see it in all of its facets as to its worth. We're enjoying the ride. We're not paying attention. And so the exhortation is to give much closer attention. And I'll go ahead and sum it up here. He said, since the message delivered by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, that's a reference to the giving of the law, which according to in Deuteronomy was given and attended by the angels to Moses. And... Everything in the law had its penalties. And if the law, the gospel and the message of the law had its penalties for its neglect, its failures, its shortcomings, how much more will there be severe consequences for the gospel? If we can just let the law slide and we're punished... What will happen to us if we let the gospel slide? How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And he's pointing us to that great salvation because he's been pointing us to that great Savior, Jesus Christ. And you notice, and I know those of you who study your Bibles have heard this over and over, but in the Scriptures when you find a therefore... You need to see what it's there for. And there it is, right there in chapter 2, verse 1, the first word I read. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, lest we drift away from it. So the therefore points us back to chapter 1. And chapter 1 is where we've been for two weeks, but we need to spend at least one more time of looking at chapter 1. So just those of you who've been with us for the last two Sundays, this will be repetitive, but for others it will be a good summary. It's only 
three short verses, but let me read them for you. To begin, it's God spoke to the prophets, to the fathers by the prophets in various ways. We enumerated those, but now God has spoken to us by one who is a son. And so then he gives a description of this son. Long ago in many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom, and here's the sevenfold description of the son, and we've looked at each of these individually the last two weeks, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's where these next verses tell us about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he says as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is uh, superior to the angels. Well, that's the, that's the burden of the next seven passages of Scripture. We have a sevenfold description of the Son, and now the balance of the chapter, the rest of chapter 1, is seven references in the Old Testament to make one point, and that is that Jesus Christ is, a, is the Son of God, in the Old Testament, the angels were called the sons of God. But he's going to talk a little bit about the angels. He's going to show that Jesus Christ is a totally different being. He is eternal God. He is the Son of God equal to the Father. And, and will array these passages before us to show that Christ is superior. The word superior means that, that he is greater than the angels. He's superior to the angels. He is better than the angels. There were three things that the Jews, the Hebrews in this first century really had veneration for. Number one, they had veneration for the angels. And he's going to deal with that in this passage. Number two, they had veneration for Moses. Moses was the one who was the principal lawgiver and the organizer of the people of God and the leader of the people of God. And his word was the supreme word. In fact, there was a whole sect of Judaism that didn't accept as fully inspired scripture all the prophets and the Psalms, the way they accepted the Pentateuch, the Torah, the books of Moses. And the third thing they had great veneration for was the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. That is the, the temple and the sons of Levi, and the sons of Aaron, the high priest, and the ceremonial law. And that carried all, the ceremonial rituals of sacrifice. And that carried all the way through into the New Testament era. In fact, in the New Testament days, the, 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 the tradition of Moses was carried forth by the scribes, the lawyers, the men of the law, the rabbis. Paul was one of these people. The tradition of Aaron was carried forth by the Levites, by the priests. And these were the people who had the respect 
the angels, the heavenly host, the magnificent angels that are spoken of so often in the Old Testament and the New. Moses, with the word of God from Sinai, and Aaron, in the presence of God in the holy place and the most holy place. And the writer's going to show that Jesus Christ has superseded each of these. The angels, superior to the angels. The angelic order, superior to Moses in the next few chapters. And then the largest portion is how Jesus is superior to by way of complete fulfillment and beyond to Aaron, the priest. That's kind of the flow of the book, and we don't want to we don't want to miss the argument of the book. But let's look at this uh, passage right here in the time we have, and it is the, the fact that Christ is superior to the angels. Now, we don't know a lot about the angelic order, and there's a lot of overstatement with respect to it, but these are creatures that God made prior, apparently, to making humanity, creating Adam. But they were creatures that God had made for his ministering purposes, service to him. They're the seraphim. They're spoken of in Isaiah 6. They surround the throne of God. They are God's um, angels that cry, holy, 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 day and night. There's the cherubim. They're signified in the, the wings of the cherubim over the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. Then there are the metakim. The metakim are the fellows, are the, the masses of angels. The scriptures speak of myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands of angels. These are the fellows. These are the mighty host of God. The scripture speaks of three archangels or three ruling angels in various capacities. Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer. And you know the story of each of those as they show up in Scripture doing various things, as fighting God's battles and speaking God's Word and delivering God's message and being the one who holds life and death. And then you know of Lucifer, the light bearer, the brightest one, the one that probably most resembled God, who is pure light. The light bearer, Lucifer, thought of himself as ascending to the status of God and came into rebellion and took with him a large portion of the angelic host. That's a little bit of sketch of biblical angelology. Regardless of what all we may think of it, we might also be sure to know that Jesus is superior to all of that. They knew Jesus as a human being, as a carpenter, as the son of Joseph. The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the eyewitness testimony, which by the way, the writer refers to in the next section beyond our text, was strong in confirming the humanity of Christ, the earthly ministry of Christ, the things that Christ said and did, the miracle, miracles he worked, the things he taught. But the deity of Christ, his Godhood, His Godhead, they needed instruction. Because you see, the Israelite people had been raised, the Hebrew people to whom this is addressed, had been raised from their infancy believing, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
monotheism. One God was the religion of Israel. God may have creatures. He may have servants. He may have sons in some sense or another. Adam was the son of God. The angels are the sons of God. But this notion that God has a son, that God is sonship as well as fatherhood in his most pure spirit, this, this notion of the triune God was just beginning to dawn upon them in the age of new revelation that Jesus Christ had brought. So these Hebrews had to be taken back to the Old Testament, the source of all of their understanding, and shown that Jesus is, in fact, that Son, that divine, fully God. And the sevenfold description we've seen before then will set us up. Let me just sketch through these real quickly. There in chapter 1, it says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Well, this starts right at the very top. This is a quotation out of Psalm 2. This is the, the um, liturgy that is given for the coronation ceremony, the enthronement ceremony of the king in ancient Israel. And this particular psalm, this particular piece of liturgy in the Old Testament is now applied to Jesus Christ. Because he is the Son of God. And this is the theme of the message to Mary. He shall be great. He shall be the Son of the Most High. And I will give to him the throne of his father David. In the Annunciation to Mary, the Virgin Mother. And it's also part of apostolic preaching. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches there in the Antioch Pisidian synagogue and his sermon has this theme of the enthronement of Christ. Peter preached this, Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost. The fact that he's been raised up to sit upon this throne. The second one, or again, and it's a repetitive passage, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is a reference to the promise that God made that we spent a lot of time on back when we looked in, in the books of Samuel and saw there the prophet Nathan making the promise to David that there would be an eternal son, not just Solomon and Rehoboam and the descendants of the, Ju of the line of Judah, but instead there would be a son, the son, and it would be Jesus Christ. He would have the full rights of sonship. It carries with it the notion of adoption. We find that in the life of Jesus. It says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. That was at his baptism, the transfiguration. Once again, the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The scholars have noted that the ancient Near East, in what's known sometimes as Oriental culture, there was an enthronement ceremony, and this was what was entailed in that ceremony. The father, in giving the kingship to his son, would emphasize several points. He would make sure that people knew that this boy was his son. And in the case of King David and almost, they had sons everywhere, multiple sons and multiple mothers, actually, in many cases. But there was a son that had the right to the throne. 
The law of primogeniture applied, and this son would be called the firstborn son. This is applied to Jesus. It didn't mean Jesus was born and, and he started at his birth, but it meant that he had that position. He was the firstborn son. Another, another thing that took place in this ancient ceremony was the father would assure the people in this ceremony that this particular son was the select son and he was beloved. He was the son that the father had bestowed an unusual measure of his love upon. He would also let everyone know that this son was well-pleasing to his father. You remember David had one son that was well-pleasing to him, Solomon, and one son that was a rebellious son, Absalom. The son must be well-pleasing. And then he would let everyone know that this son, this well-pleasing son, this firstborn son, this designated or elect son was the heir to the horizon. He was the heir of all things. This son had the total dominion. And then finally, all of these things would be summed up in an act, in a ceremonial act in which this son would be anointed with the precious ointments of the king. You see this in the life of Jesus? At his baptism, at his transfiguration? You see, he's designated as this son, this true son. And so the author brings that passage out to indicate that Jesus had fulfilled all of this expectation of the father-son relationship that had been promised to David. He was indeed raised up to sit on David's throne. And then again, it goes on in verse uh, 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, you know what that firstborn means now. It's a designation. When he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. This is a quotation out of Deuteronomy and a quotation out of Psalm 97. The angels are subjected to the authority of Christ the Son, not the other way around. They're to serve the Son. Angels are mentioned in, in the life of Jesus. You remember when he was in dire straits following physically and emotionally and every other way following the temptation and the assault upon his character that Satan had made in the wilderness. You remember? The angels came and ministered to Jesus. In the garden, the angels came. In the desert, in the wilderness, in the garden, the angels came and ministered to him. And in fact, the, the cabal was that he could call 10,000 angels to deliver him from the cross. But he didn't do it. Because he suffered because of the joy that was set before him. And that's the oil of gladness. The anointing with joy and gladness that Jesus received in his life and ministry. Let me, let's move on here. The third instance, it speaks of the firstborn. Um, I'm sorry, I've skipped one here. The angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here is a picture of the angels. They are seen as wind and fire. They're seen as these two forces that go forth to accomplish the purpose and the work of God. But the sun does not burn himself out or blow himself out as the wind and the fire do in imagery. But the sun is eternal. And this is what it says. Of the sun, he says, 
Your throne is forever and ever. And here he's quoting the 45th Psalm, and Psalm 45 is the wedding ceremony of the king. When the king takes a bride, there's a, there's a wedding, a royal wedding ceremony, and it's, it's Psalm 45. In fact, I've used it up here in weddings. I've read the earlier portion, the first portion of that psalm as part of the call to worship to set the scene for a wedding ceremony here. And it's Christological and Messianic through and through. You ought to read it. It's beautiful. The 45th Psalm, and this is a quotation from it. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Then moving along to the next passage, 102, Psalm 102. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. Here's the picture of that which is wasting away, that which is temporal, that which is like the angels. They're fire and wind, and, and they're going to dissipate. Created, finite, the earth, but not the sun. Because he is eternal. Read the very next verse. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. What we have here is a picture of the immutability, God-like qualities, divine attributes attributed to the Son, and eternality without end. And then he says, finally there in 13, he said, in which of the angels did he say, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this, of course, we recognize quickly as Psalm 110, which is a coronation psalm. It is a, a Davidic psalm, and it is the psalm that is pivotal in the ministry of Jesus in identifying his character as the Son of God. This particular psalm is quoted 22 times in the New Testament by Christ himself and the apostles. 22 times Psalm 110 is quoted, and it's quoted in various parts as till sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This parallels what we saw in the sevenfold description where it says he's at the majesty of the Father's right hand. This is Jesus being, being lifted up and placed in that place of authority. Now the interesting thing about this is Jesus used this particular verse in his confrontation with the religious leaders of his day, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others who would question him. They were always asking him questions, you know. Uh, somebody marries seven times and they go to heaven, whose wife should go to be, and all these silly questions they ask Jesus to try to trip him up. You know, Moses says this, but what do you say, trying to trip him up? Jesus said, I have a question for you. Mo uh, David says in the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. And David said, un, and the Lord said to the questioners and to his enemies, tell me what that means. How can this be David's Lord, my Lord, and at the same time be David's son? Thou art my son, this day have begotten thee. How can Jesus be David's son and how can he be David's Lord? Well, there's only one way. He can be David's son in his humanity. 
the descendant of the lineage of David. And that's what the balance of chapter 2 is all about. All of chapter 2 going into chapter 3 is about the humanity of, of, of Jesus, how he's made a little lower than the angels for a time in his humanity. And he humbled himself. The emptying and the humbling of Christ to, to fulfill his mission, that which he had been sent, and that is the mission of salvation. He can be David's son in his humanity, but he's David's Lord in his deity. Jesus Christ is God, the Son, and David's Lord and Master. And then he concludes there in verse 14, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve the Lord for the sake of those that inherit salvation? Salvation is seen as an inheritance. In fact, that's what the land was all about in the Old Testament. When they went into the land of Canaan, what did they do? They allotted the land to the various tribes. And that word allotment means an inheritance. They all got an inheritance, an allotment. So the package of, of salvation is pictured in the Old Testament as the land of Canaan, where you, are, you inherit it. And that's our salvation. And the angels are sent to minister. Christ has come to provide those for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Salvation is an incredible inheritance. It comes to us through the firstborn son. And it is shared by us as we are in Christ. We are positioned in him and we are regarded in him. His death for sin is our death for sin. His resurrection is our resurrection to life. The bestowal of the inheritance upon him is us inheriting. We inherit all the salvation. Now, how shall we escape if we walk away from that? What's left? If you disobeyed one of Moses' commands that was ministered to Moses by the angels, and you got in serious trouble for that, even the death penalty. How precarious, how much trouble do you think you're in if you neglect, just let drift away so great salvation. I'll say so great a Savior.